So uh, we have been kind of walking from semester to semester. We're walking through systematic theology, and we're going through systematic theology uh, in a very systematic sort of approach. And so uh, after talking about uh, homartiology, which is what? Anybody? Doctrine of sin. Then we went into soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And so we've kind of covered that uh, over multiple semesters. The first semester uh, that we covered soteriology, we, we uh, covered what Christ actually accomplished for us. And, uh, and then last semester, we looked at how that is applied to us. So a couple of semesters ago, what Christ accomplished. Last semester, how that is applied to us. And then we're kind of continuing on with soteriology, but really kind of getting into Christian living this semester. So as we kind of look at the effects of what Christ has applied to us, uh, we're uh, kind of looking at uh, Christian living. And so talking about things like sanctification, that's what we talked about last week. That's what we're talking about again this week. And then we'll move into ecclesiology, which is the doctrine uh, of the church. And so we'll be there in, uh, in just a few uh, weeks. So sanctification. Last week we started uh, by talking about sanctification through the lens of mortification. And, uh, and Zach talked about the fact that sanctification kind of consists of uh, two different parts. And so today we want to kind of talk about part two of that. And I want to begin by opening with a, a bit of an illustration. So a few months ago, I was uh, going out to my car to get into my car to come up to work. And uh, as I go to my car and open the door, I get in and I notice then that there is a piece of paper on the windshield, which is strange. You expect that when you, you were like in a uh, shopping center parking lot or something like that, someone to put a flyer. You don't expect that in your own driveway. And so I go and I uh, uh, open the note and it's handwritten and it's someone who is offering to buy my car uh, for his son. That's when you know that your car is not in great shape, when people are just randomly leaving notes. It's not up on blocks or anything, but uh, for whatever reason, this guy had taken a look at, uh, at my uh, Civic and decided, you know what, this guy's probably wanting to sell. But I had no intention of selling uh, because I didn't have anything better. I didn't, uh, the car was already paid off and uh, it was somewhat reliable being a uh, Honda and, uh, and so it had good gas mileage. So I had no intention of selling it whatsoever. Now, fast forward a few months, and if you were here for Christmas Eve, you heard the story of how my in-laws gave me a uh, really nice but used truck for Christmas. And, uh, and so uh, as a result of that, just last week, I sold uh, my Civic. Or to be more precise, Tim sold my Civic because uh, he... Uh, loves Craigslist and negotiations, and he kind of knows stuff about cars. Uh, I don't know stuff about cars, so if I were selling my car and someone were to tell me that my sander is broken or something like that, I'd be like, oh, okay, I guess I got to lower the price. And Tim would be like, a sander is not a part of a car. And, uh, and so I had Tim help me with the negotiations, so I sold it. The reason that I sold it is because now all of a sudden I have this incentive, right? Now all of a sudden I have this truck that's exceedingly greater than, uh, than my civic. Well, that's an exemplification. That's an illustration of sanctification. That is what sanctification entails. There was a point in your life where nothing was as precious to you as sin, where, uh, whereas now you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden, sin begins to lose its taste. And, uh, and so this is uh, sanctification for us. We talked again last week about how sanctification kind of consists of two parts. There's mortification, which is what Zach talked about last week. That's putting sin to death. That's emptying yourself of, uh, of sin. That would be like in the illustration, that would be selling, getting rid of uh, the civic. Then there's also vivification, the other side of the coin. That is to fill yourself with things of the Holy Spirit, to fan into flames uh, holiness within yourself, to be conformed uh, to the image of Christ by thinking about Him. And so these two things go together. These two, uh, they're two sides of the same coin, vivification and mortification. They go together like peanut butter and jelly or hall and oats or any of those great uh, duos. And we see that sort of pattern throughout Scripture. Uh, look in your notes, Ephesians 4. 20 through 24. Notice the language of both mortification, that is to put something to death, to, uh, to get rid of the bad stuff, and then also the language of vivification, uh, to put certain things to life, to, uh, to fan into flame certain things. 
Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What's the mortification language in that passage? Put off your old self. What's the vivification language in that passage? Put on the new self, or also to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's what Zach is going to talk about uh, in our sermon this morning from uh, Romans 12, to be renewed, the renewal of your minds uh, in its relationship to sanctification. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Again, notice the mortification and the vivification aspect. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Vivification, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Again, vivification, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Notice the mortification, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 1 Peter 2, this is not just something that uh, is kind of Paul's fixation, but Peter talks about it. 1 Peter 2, so put away mortification, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That's vivification, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And not merely Paul or Peter, but Jesus himself will talk about uh, this uh, reality. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What's the mortification there? Somebody mumbled it. I heard it. Sells all that he has. And what's vivification? That he goes and he buys the field. So that's what we're going to chat about today. Really what we're going to do is we're going to take uh, sanctification as a, a whole, kind of look at it holistically, and then towards the end, we're going to kind of narrow our focus down to uh, vivification in particular. So that's what we're going to do. First, I want to begin by uh, talking about why we're doing two weeks on sanctification. Why is it that we're doing uh, two weeks on sanctification? I could have given a dozen or so different reasons, but I just put six here uh, in your notes. Uh, so reason number one, why we're doing two different weeks on this. First reason, a tr there's a tragic neglect of theological teaching and expository preaching in our churches, by and large, which are more focused on ways to live debt-free, ways to raise well-behaved kids, to care for creation, how to be politically correct, whatever uh, it might uh, be. And while some of those things are good and important, those aren't the ultimate goal. Zach's going to be preaching today from Romans 12 on discerning the will of God. Everyone wants to know what is the will of God. And there's a few passages in Scripture where it talks about this is the will of God. One of those is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, which says, this is the will of God. Can anyone finish that? Your sanctification. You want to know what God's will for your life is? It's not some sort of hidden, mysterious sort of reality. Working at this job, marrying this person, moving to this city, whatever it might be. It's not this hidden, mysterious thing. God's will for your life is that you be sanctified. That is, that you be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That you both put off the things that are fleshly about you and put on that which is Christ Jesus. So there's a tragic neglect, though, of theological teaching and expository preaching focusing on these sorts of subjects. Instead, we just want to talk about uh, how to live debt-free or raise well-behaved kids or be politically correct or whatever it might be. A second reason that we're doing two weeks on sanctification is because there is a critical lack of holiness in evangelical churches. Not just obvious sins like premarital sex, unbiblical divorce, but also the more subtle sort of sins, the type of sins that Christians by and large have just always been okay with, greed, gluttony, uh, or drunkenness, or legalism on the other hand. So this is critical lack of holiness in evangelical churches. A third reason is because our culture is falling further from biblical mores. And so as a result, the cultural expectation and ideal of morality has shifted. There's this immorality that's now accepted 
there's immorality in our political leaders. There's immorality even in evangelical leaders. There's homosexual marriage. There's abortion, the, the cultural acceptab acceptability and access to pornography, the proliferation of the roots of feminism, which undercuts God's word and the means of man's and woman's flourishing. Uh, on and on and on we could go. In other words, think about a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, you take even the pagan members of society, and by and large, the majority of them share the same virtues as Christians. That's no longer the case. That is no longer the case today when the virtues of Christianity, the values of Christianity, uh, are much more antithetical to our surrounding culture. So as our culture is going to drift away from Judeo-Christian values, there is this need for more of an emphasis on our part to understand what sin is and what sanctification is. A fourth reason is because churches in general, Christians in particular, tend to oversimplify things. We tend to either want to uh, just go head forward into sin and use grace as a license for sin or swing the pendulum the other way and just create some sort of arbitrary law. Uh, Christians in general have always just kind of preferred either legalism or licentiousness. And, uh, and the idea there of balance, the idea there of, uh, of rejecting both legalism and licentiousness uh, is very difficult. So many people believe that they're holy because they don't drink, or they believe that they're holy because they don't curse, or they don't watch certain movies or something like that, not realizing that they are just as sinful because they're judgmental, they're legalistic, whatever it might be. Others, especially those who grew up in that kind of context, who grew up in a kind of more of a fundamentalist or a legalistic background, swing the pendulum the other way as if grace means that you can get drunk. Or grace means you can say whatever you want, whatever you want. Or grace means that you can watch whatever you want. In other words, understanding sanctification is important because the modern American church doesn't really understand sin or grace. We want to swing the pendulum back and forth. A fifth reason that we're doing two weeks on sanctification is because a theology of free grace has convinced an entire generation that it's possible to have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. We've talked about this a number of times. We've talked about it in Romans 6. We've talked about it uh, before as we've talked about the doctrine of sin. So there's this idea there that I can be a Christian and I can still sleep with my girlfriend or I can still sleep with my boyfriend or I can be a Christian and I can pursue a homosexual lifestyle or I can be a Christian and I can divorce my spouse. And so kind of the cultural uh, ideal now, the great commission, or I'm sorry, the great commandment is no longer to love God and love others according to Scripture, but instead just kind of this idea, don't judge me, bro. That's kind of the highest law uh, possible in our culture. And so that's a fifth reason to study sanctification. And then the last reason is because evangelical theology has misunderstood and mis uh, misapplied the idea that all sin is equal. We've talked about uh, how that's a distortion of uh, biblical teaching. There's a sense in which it's correct. All sin is uh, an affront to God, but there's also a sense in which it's misleading uh, that uh, the Mosaic Law prescribed different penalties for different sins. The Mosaic Law differentiated high-handed sin versus unintentional sin. Even Jesus talks about uh, this when he says that Judas is guilty of quote-unquote a greater sin. I don't know why I unquoted that before I actually had said it. Uh, he, he, he said, quote, that Judas is gu guilty of a greater sin uh, than, uh, than Pilate. And so you'll hear this a lot, that all sins are equal. So uh, you struggle with your thought life and someone else struggles with pornography and they say that's the same thing. But those aren't the same thing. Uh, there's a sense in which my uh, having a lustful thought is sinful. There's a sense in which that is an affront to my uh, relationship with Casey, but it is exceedingly worse for me to actually have an affair than to just simply entertain the thought of having an affair. Uh, the Bible will talk about uh, that. So there's, uh, as a pastor, I, I expect that there are sins that you're never going to fully conquer, but I also expect there to be sins that you don't pursue. And, uh, and so for, for the rest of your life, you might struggle with a temptation towards uh, sexual lust, but I expect you as your pastor to not have an affair. I expect you as a pastor to not look at pornography. 
And you have the power in the Holy Spirit to put those things to death. Or another example, I don't expect that you will ever fully overcome your temptation towards greed, but I do expect that you're never going to actually rob a bank. You're never going to actually be the one who is perpetrating some sort of Ponzi scheme. I do expect that you're going to give generously to the church and others and, uh, and on and on we can go. So that's a few reasons why we're doing two weeks on sanctification. Let's talk about what sanctification is. Kind of comes from uh, two, do, two different words. In Hebrew, the word kadosh. In Greek, the word hagios. And, uh, and so the, the kind of linguistic range, the range uh, that the, the term kind of carries is kind of the idea of to be separated, to be set apart. Uh, something is being sacred or devoted to something. It's, it's kind of the idea that you're consecrated from something that you might be dedicated to something. That's holiness uh, in uh, the lens of the, uh, the Old Testament. So kind of the Old Testament background of sanctification you have this image of uh, people being consecrated from something that they can be dedicated to something. Consecrated from some aspect of, uh, of uncleanness, of sin, or whatever it might be, so that they might be dedicated in particular to God, uh, to God. So in the Old Testament, you have this idea of Israel as a holy people. They're wearing holy clothes. They're using holy utensils, offering holy objects. Uh, on a holy altar at a holy temple in a holy land on holy days according to a holy law spoken by a holy God. So you see this emphasis throughout the Old Testament on holiness, and that same sort of emphasis is going to come through in the New Testament, although a lot of those aspects of what is and is not a, uh, a holy utensil, what is and is not a holy day is not going to carry over. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, as we uh, continue to move on. But let's look at some definitions of, uh, of sanctification. Anthony Hakama, uh, in a book called Possessed by God, which is a pretty good book on sanctification, uh, he said, uh, he's not the author of that book, he was just quoted, David Peterson wrote the book, but uh, his definition is that gracious offering, operation, sorry, the gracious offering, I keep saying that word, that gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which He, that's God, delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to Him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. You see the mortification and vivification. Die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833 says, We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of His holiness, that it is a progressive work, that it is begun in regeneration, that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, in the continual use of the appointed means, especially the Word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. Or Wayne Grudem defines it as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So that's kind of what sanctification is. Any of those definitions I think are uh, really good. Let's take, talk about when does sanctification occur. And one of the things you'll notice in Scripture is that sanctification has these past, present, and future aspects and implications so a really robust understanding of sanctification is going to involve your understanding of all of these three uh, dimensions. So in the past, what's often called definitive or, um, or positional holiness, the Bible will talk about that, Hebrews 10.10, and by that will, that's the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So notice that language, uh, that's something that's already happened. We have been sanctified. Or uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit uh, of our God. Again, notice that this is something that uh, is past. This has already been accomplished. Positionally, you are sanctified because you are in Christ, and Christ Jesus is for us our justification. He is for us our righteousness. He is for us our sanctification. 
And because you're in Christ, you are sanctified. That's why the Bible would describe us as saints. That's what it means, holy ones. The reason that we're described as saints is because we are already sanctified. There is a sense in which we are positionally, in terms of our identity, is wrapped up in the idea that we have been set apart. So remember, think about this, uh, as Paul is saying this, of the Corinthians, of all people, that you were sanctified. Think about the context of, uh, of the church in Corinth. If you've read the book of Corinthians, you know this place is a mess, just an absolute mess. There's sexual morality, not just sexual morality, but sexual immorality of the type, Paul says, that would make pagans blush, like really, really bad. A man is having his, uh, his mother-in-law, uh, basically, or stepmother or something uh, like that. There's lawsuits among believers. There's boasting over one another. There's a disorderly use of the spiritual gifts. There's people getting drunk during communion. People getting drunk during communion, which I think is just strange. People denying the resurrection. There's all kinds of division. There's idolatry. Again, it's a mess, and yet they're described as sanctified, positionally set apart. Again, there's this various references to believers as saints. So this sort of past positional holiness is marked by immediate and initial freedom for the dominion the reign, and the rule of sin. We've talked about that in Romans 6, that you are, the moment that you are saved, you are delivered from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. You're not delivered from the presence of sin, but you are delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. That's the past uh, aspect of sanctification. There's also a future aspect of sanctification that uh, is that sanctification is uh, one day going to be complete. We can call that perfect sanctification or perfected sanctification. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Or Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's this final, full, eternal perfection. So there's coming a day when you will be fully sanctified, that is, you will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. When is that day going to occur? I'm not looking for like a date, like April 7th. <laughs> resurrection, right? Resurrection. Resurrection is the answer. When Jesus comes back, uh, that is the, the, the time when this thing will happen. If you die before then, there's a sense in which you will be uh, sanctified. Uh, even before then, you're still kind of waiting for uh, the, the, the fullness of uh, uh, of God's promises to you uh, in the resurrection. But that's when that is going to happen. And there's also, uh, in addition to the past and the future, there's this present aspect. That's most often what we're talking about when we talk about sanctification. We're most often talking about the present aspect of sanctification that is called progressive sanctification. So you have the past, which is positional. You have the future, which is perfected. And then you have the present, which is uh, progressive. So if you really like alliteration, uh, that's uh, that. Progressive sanctification, that's more what we're focusing on today. That's more when people talk about sanctification in general, they mean uh, this. Second Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Hebrews 10.14, for by a single offering He is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's a sense in which we're perfected. There's a sense in which we're being sanctified, ongoing, progressive work. It's slow, it's arduous, and again, this is what we most often mean when we're talking about uh, sanctification. So let's talk about how sanctification occurs. How does this progressive sanctification, this, this present, ongoing sanctification occurs? The first thing that you need to know about it, and you can't miss this, this is the most important thing that you note about it, is that it is God's work. Sanctification is always God's work. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you're reading, I, I don't have this in the notes, but if you're, uh, if you're reading uh, from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus uh, would ask the Father, He says, Sanctify them, sanctify your people. Sanctify your children. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus asks God the Father to do what only God can do, which is to sanctify the saints. 
or notice how often in Scripture, if you're reading in Scripture, notice how often the word sanctify, uh, sanctify is in the passive. Uh, notice how often it's in the passive. What is uh, the difference between a passive and an active verb? In an active verb, who does the action of the verb? The subject. The subject does the acti- uh, action of the verb. In a passive sentence, who does uh, the subject is the recipient uh, of the verb. So the difference between Zach hit me and I hit Zach, right? In one, I am the recipient of the action. In the other, I am the subject of the action. And so uh, notice how often in Scripture uh, that sanctify is in the passive. It's something that's done to you. God does it. You are the recipient of the action of sanctification. That the Bible is not telling us throughout the New Testament. It doesn't tell us to sanctify ourselves. Instead, this is God's uh, work. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, I don't think this is in your notes, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who all in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we're sanctified. Again, that's passive. We're the recipients of that. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we read it before, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So if God is the one who does the washing and God is the one who does the justifying, then God is also the one who does the sanctifying. So how does sanctification occur? It occurs through God. God is the means by which you are sanctified. But unlike in regeneration and in justification, we aren't merely passive recipients. Instead, we get this opportunity to somehow participate in some mysterious way. And the reason I say in some mysterious way, because I think as we read the Scripture, even our cooperation, even our participation is somehow owing to God's sovereign grace. We see that throughout uh, Scripture, that even your cooperation in sanctification is somehow all owing to God's sovereignty and His grace Nowhere do you see that more clearly than Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my uh, presence, but much more in my absence, notice this language, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But also notice that he recognizes that at the end of the day, it is God's sovereignty and God's grace uh, that uh, allows us to do that. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God's sovereign over it, but we still have a responsibility. We see that responsibility in other passages. I don't think this one's in your note, but Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the the Lord. So the author of Hebrews is telling us to strive for holiness, to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, which is Uh, in your notes. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Listen to this language. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are ever increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling in it and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, I think the Bible would say that there must be for us, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, this is not the way that we get into Christ Jesus. We've talked about that before. There's a difference between justification and sanctification. Everything I'm talking about with sanctification is assuming that you've already been regenerated, you've already been born again, you've already been justified, you've already been uh, united to Christ. But now that we are united to Christ, the Bible would call us to this grace-empowered, gospel-driven effort. Uh, A quote by D.A. Carson that I think is really helpful. One of the most striking evidences 
of sinful human nature lies in the universal propensity for downward drift. In other words, it takes thought, resolve, energy, and effort to bring about reform and the grace of God. Sometimes human beings display such virtues, but where such virtues are absent, the drift is invariably toward compromise, comfort, and discipline, sliding disobedience, and decay that advances, sometimes at a crawl and sometimes at a gallop across generations. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. So sanctification happens by God, but somehow mysteriously through effort on our part. In other words, God's sovereign grace doesn't make your effort or your pursuit pointless. It's what makes it possible. So let's talk about a few gospel principles for understanding and pursuing sanctification. If you just add these on to your notes from last week when uh, Zach did a similar thing with mortification. Principles for understanding and pursuing sanctification. The first one is that we need to have a robust view of the holiness of God. I think that's one of the areas where churches uh, have drifted over the past couple hundred years, uh, where all of a sudden God is only seen as loving but his, his love has been diluted and distorted into some sort of just grandfather in the sky, never disciplines, there's no wrath, there's no jealousy, there's no holiness, whatever it might be. We need to have this robust view of the holiness of God. And that's one of the primary rationales in Scripture for our pursuit of holiness. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or consider Isaiah 6, that, uh, that passage where Isaiah sees the Lord and he's high and exalted and he's sitting uh, on his throne and uh, the, the train of his robe is filling the temple and there's smoke and, uh, and as a result of seeing just how holy the Lord is, there's the seraphim that are going around and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what's Isaiah's response? Anybody remember? He says, woe is me. He realizes in that moment how unholy he is. And this is a prophet. This is a guy who's probably fairly holy compared to you and me. But whenever he sees the holiness of God, he says, woe is me, I am undone. So holiness is this sort of attribute that qualifies all of the other attributes of God. You think about God's love, it's a holy love. You think about His grace, it's a holy grace. You think about His jealousy, it's a holy jealousy. You think about His kindness, it's a holy kindness. You think about His wrath, it's a holy uh, wrath. And so we need to have this robust view of the holiness of God, but also a robust view of His grace and mercy. That's what really empowers and encourages sanctification when we grasp just how good and gracious and generous God is to us. Guilt and shame only work for so long as motivators, but love is what is going to endure. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. At the end of the day, this lingering, habitual, residual sin in your life is an evidence that you don't love Christ as you ought in that particular area. That's an area that you need to recognize uh, that you aren't grateful as you should be. And so, have a robust view of the holiness of God, have a robust view of the grace and goodness and love of God. A second principle for understanding and pursuing sanctification is that we need to get serious. Zach talked about this uh, a bit last week, I thought that was great, that we need to recognize and remember that it is our responsibility to pursue holiness and that this responsibility is both grave and somber and also delightful and pleasant. I read this verse before. I'll read it again. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
That's a serious passage calling for a serious response. Or Jesus in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better, for you to, it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The question is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that it's better to cut off our hands and to gouge out our eyes? And there's two errors that we can make here. One of them is that we just kind of read it literally. So all of us go around plucking out our eyes and cutting off our hands. Zach would love that. We'd all look like pirates. That's one error that we need to avoid. People in church history, by the way, have done that. There have been people who struggled with lust, and so they castrated themselves. Um, that's one error that we need to avoid. Taking this thing literally in the sense of, I'm going to actually pluck out my eye, I'm going to actually cut off uh, my hand. But the other error, I think the more subtle, the more insidious error for us is that we swing the pendulum all the way to the other end. We say, this doesn't mean that we actually cut off our hand. This doesn't mean that we actually gouge out our eye. So I'm not going to metaphorically do it either. I'm, not going to, I'm basically just going to ignore this. I'm going to be apathetic uh, towards this. I'm going to be indifferent uh, towards this command. You see, sin is always going to trick us into believing that the consequences of sin aren't really that bad. It's also going to trick us into believing that the reward for obedience isn't that good. So why strive? Why labor? Why yearn? Why be desperate? Why be hungry for these things? I'm going to stop for a second. I talked about, I mentioned before, that sin tries to convince us that the reward for obedience isn't that great. So I want to stop and think about that concept of reward because I think that's a big uh, concept uh, for us in Scripture. Uh, imagine that I tell you that uh, for every mile that you walk, you go, uh, after services today, if you go out and you start walking, every mile that you walk, I'll give you $1 million dollars. How many of you, let's say that you actually believe that you see my truck, you know that I drive a nice truck, so you think, he must have the resources for this. Uh, how many of you would walk at least one mile? Some of you wouldn't. Some of you are super rich. You need to be giving more to the church because <laughs> you're like, I'm not even going to walk a mile. Uh, how many of you would maybe just walk for like a day, two days, three days or something like that? Some of you, Right. Uh, now, imagine that I said, I will give you one penny for every marathon that you run. How many of you are going to do that? Nobody. Why not? It's not worth it, right? So, I, I think what happens for us is that we don't really believe that sin is as bad as it really should be. We don't really believe that the, the uh, rewards of sin are really that great. There's a difference between saying, I will give you a million dollars if you'll walk a mile, and I'll give you one penny if you'll run a marathon, but our indifference to sin reveals that we have this serious misunderstanding of the reward and the joy of obedience, whereas the Bible is always going to assume that you will seek a reward. Consider the Sermon on the Mount, all the Beatitudes, all of them are, to, they're calling us to be meek, to be a peacemaker, all of those kinds of things. Why, though? Because you'll inherit the earth, because you'll be comforted all of these sorts of things. All of them are attached to a, uh, uh, a reward. Or the, the various parables that you see in Scripture. We read one before, that there's the man who sells all that he has because he finds this treasure uh, in a field. Or the, 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 the parable of the pearl of the great price. Or Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. I think this is in your notes. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So we could go on and on. So get serious. Get serious not only about the gravity of sin and the consequences of disobedience, but also the seriousness of God's promises of reward. Get serious about that. Next, avail yourself of all possible biblical motivations. Throughout Scripture, we see all of these different motivations that you should obey because of duty, because of delight, because of God's omniscience, because it's the right thing to do, because it's for our good, because of God's example, Christ's example, because of assurance, because of evangelism, because of the return of Christ, 
because of the futility and folly of sin, because of the promise of future grace, the promise of future judgment, the surety of our inheritance, the communion of saints, the good example of others, the bad examples of others, the fear of the Lord, the love of the Lord, the glory of God, and on and on we can go. In other words, our weapons of warfare are numerous, and we shouldn't neglect any of the means that God has granted to us. For example, let's say that I'm tempted to look at something on my computer that I shouldn't. I should simply, the greatest motivation is that I love Jesus so much that I'm going to turn from that temptation. But let's say in that moment, for whatever reason, I'm tired, I'm hungry, my affections for Christ are really low, uh, and so there's not great, there's not room for me to have these great uh, affections for Jesus. I'm having a really bad day. So then what do I do? Well, then I think about Casey, how devastated she would be if I told her or how burdened I will be if I have to keep that as a secret. I think about having to tell all the other elders about and how humiliating that will be, or how divided and how shady and how broken I would be if I kept that a secret. I think about how humiliating it would be for me to stand in front of the congregation and to tell you guys, or again, how destroyed I'm going to be internally if I just keep it a secret. I think about how I love ministry so much and how I would hate to wear khakis and sit in a cubicle. No offense if you wear khakis and sit in a cubicle, but that's not for me. In other words, I know that my motivation should be a love for Jesus, but when that chamber is empty, I have six, uh, five other rounds, whatever it is, loaded up, ready to go. So see through the lie and see the pain and sorrow behind the facade of pleasure that sin offers. So avail yourself of any biblical motivation. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, Fourth, pursue Christ rather than holiness. If you pursue Christ, you will get holiness. If you pursue holiness as an end in itself, you will get neither. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because, uh, because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you want to know where sanctification is, it's in Jesus. So get close to Jesus and you'll get sanctification. There's a great book um, that's uh, something like... Um, you become what you worship, I think is the name of it, by uh, G.K. Bill. And, uh, and he says, we resemble what we revere for ruin or restoration. And the kind of the idea there is by looking upon Christ, you're conformed to His image. And so pursue Christ rather than holiness. The goal is that you get Christ. If you get Christ, you also get holiness because He is holy. Fifth, believe that sanctification is a community project. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's two implications of that. There's also the Hebrews 10 passage, um, but uh, you can read that. Two implications that uh, you need to learn how to apply this to your own sanctification and also the sanctification of your brother or sister. You need others for your own sanctification, and others need you for their sanctification. Sixth, get to the root of the sin. The sanctification is first about identity, then desire, then action. What you want to do is you want to pull the root versus just mow over uh, the lawn. And so ask yourself why. Why do you do the things that you do, whether it's uh, lust or greed or pride or whatever it might be. Get to the root of that. Seventh, consider more than just overt sin. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice that it mentions both sin and weight. There's both sin and weight. Those are two different things. So the question, what are the weights that are holding you down as you attempt to run the race with perseverance? Let me mention some possible potential weights for you. These aren't sinful things. These are morally neutral things. But they could hold you down. They could hold you back. They could keep you from being as conformed to the image of Christ as you could be. Your possessions. A certain lifestyle. Your job. Television. Video games. Your phone. Again, these are all morally neutral things. But nonetheless, some of them might need to be laid down completely, some of them need to be really reined in for the sake of being conformed to the image of Christ. We could go on and on with other uh, examples. Eighth, do the right action even if you don't feel like it. 
In other words, don't compound one sin with another. For example, suppose that you realize that your heart really isn't in reading Scripture. You wake up in the morning, you just don't feel like reading Scripture. Recognize in that moment that you have an opportunity. Right now, you're already exhibiting a sinful lack of desire for God's Word. Don't compound that sin by also acting upon it. So do the right thing, even if the action is not there. The action is incomplete because the desire is not with it. But it's better to do an incomplete action that is right than simply to ignore it uh, completely. If you do the action, oftentimes your heart will catch up eventually. And then we finally get to vivification in particular. And one of the big things that you can do uh, in regards to pursuing and understanding sanctification is fill yourself with affections for Christ such that you have no room for the love of sin. Fill yourself with affections for Christ such that you have no room for the love of sin. Again, read over those passages that talk about both mortification and vivification. Emptying yourself and filling uh, yourself. One of the greatest uh, works on this historically is from a 19th century Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers, and he wrote a, or he preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of of a new affection. And uh, in the opening summary, he says this, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart may be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that Uh, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. Think back to my illustration of my car. There was nothing that was going to convince me, no matter what this guy said uh, in his sob story about how his son needed a car that was going to compel me to give uh, or to sell my Civic because I didn't have anything better until I got a truck. And all of a sudden now, it dislodged my affection for the Civic. Because I have this greater good. That's what he's talking about here. That there is nothing that will displace, to dislodge your desire for sin like a corresponding and greater love for Jesus. And uh, and so let me give you some practical uh, advice and then we will uh, close and do some uh, Q&A. Practical advice. First, practice the spiritual disciplines. If you want to be sanctified, you must practice a collection of these. These are the places that God has promised grace. This is where you go. If you want grace, if you want to be sanctified, you must be pursuing these things. Not necessarily all of them all of the time, but a collection of them. Prayer, Scripture, worship through singing, community, fasting, generosity, slash giving, the ordinances or sacraments, scripture memorization, marriage, Zach talked about last week, is a, a, a spiritual discipline that God has given His people. So that's the first thing. Practice spiritual disciplines. Second thing, find out what morally neutral, maybe even mundane things can stir or excite or awaken your affections for Christ and do whatever it takes to saturate your life with those things. Obviously, assuming that you don't say that some sort of sin stirs your affections for Christ. So things that help me, writing, writing helps me process my thoughts, writing helps me uh, to to feel closer to the Lord and uh, reading, taking walks, getting up early so that I have the house to myself to pray and read. For you that might be staying up late so that you have the house to yourself to pray and read. Being outside in nature. I love mountains. I love the ocean. Not being in the ocean. That's where sharks are, but just walking along beaches. Downtown, major cities. I love just walking through the downtown uh, area. Working out, being around friends. I'm an introvert, so this is a discipline uh, for me. I always just kind of gravitate towards staying home, so I have to discipline myself to be around others for the good of my soul. Um, cleaning the house, uh, I enjoy just, there's been, it's been said that those who labor with their minds kind of rest with their hands. Deep conversations and on and on we could go. So find out what are those morally neutral things, maybe even mundane things, that for whatever reason they just stir your affections for Christ. 
and try to fill your life with those. Also, find out what robs your affections for Christ and try to cut off those or at least uh, kind of uh, bound them in to moderation. Uh, For example, whether that's TV or video games or food or shopping or sports or whatever uh, it might be, to ask yourself the question, am I really being conformed to the image of Christ by this thing? Is it awakening my love for Jesus or is it robbing my love for Jesus or His church or whatever uh, it might uh, be? Next, make a plan. Make a plan. If you don't make a plan for something, you probably won't actually do it. Talk about the things that you will do. Uh, not only the disciplines, but also things that stir your affections. Think about the things that you won't do, things that rob your affections. And, uh, and talk about here how to pursue those things. Write it down. Tell a couple of others, uh, your spouse, someone in your community group, whatever it might be. And then lastly, don't freak out if you get off track a little bit. The goal is faithfulness, and there's always grace. So I want to give a closing illustration, and then I'm going to have Zach uh, come up here. I've used this illustration uh, before. Uh, but I think it's uh, a really helpful, powerful way to kind of talk about this idea of vivification uh, in particular. So, uh, in, uh, in Greek mythology, uh, there were these uh, things called sirens. Sirens were these sort of beautiful mythical creatures that uh, looked like women, and they sang this beautiful song, and their beautiful songs would allure people to their island, and whenever uh, sailors would go to their island, then the sirens would devour them. In, uh, in Greek mythology. And there's two heroes in Greek mythology that uh, actually avoided the uh, enticement, the allure of the sirens. The first one is a guy named Odysseus. You might be familiar with him from uh, Homer's writings. And, uh, and so Odysseus, what he does is he hears uh, that there are going to be sirens. He's told by a, uh, a soothsayer, a fortune teller, something like that. He's told that there are these sirens. You're going to have to pass by their island and, uh, and so, uh, as he gets close to the island, before he actually begins to hear uh, their sort of enticing song, what he does is he takes wax and, uh, and he puts it in um, uh, each of his uh, uh, various sailors that are all rowing the boat. He puts it in all of their ears. And then he gets them to lash him to the mast. So he is just kind of strapped to the mast. And he tells them, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter how furiously I lash out, do not allow me uh, to break free from the mast. Because otherwise, I cannot resist uh, the enticement of the, uh, of the sirens. And so that's what happens. They start to, to row by. He starts to hear uh, them singing. His sailors are, meanwhile, completely unaffected because they have the wax in their ear. They can't hear anything. And so he begins to just struggle and strain and fight against the ropes uh, until he, they are out of uh, earshot of the sirens. And then um, the, uh, the sailors are able to take the, uh, uh, the ropes off and all of that. That's how a lot of us think of sanctification. Like, we really want to pursue this sin, and yet we just kind of white-knuckle it. We just kind of keep ourselves from doing this sin that we really like to do, like Odysseus. We're straining, we're striving uh, against the ropes. Now, there's another guy. His name is Orpheus, not Morpheus. That's uh, the guy from The, the Matrix. But Orpheus, and, uh, and he has a similar story. He's going to go by uh, this island, but he doesn't do the wax thing, and he doesn't have his sailors tie him to the ropes. Instead, he gets close to the island. The sirens begin to sing. His sailors begin to row toward the island furiously, trying to get there as quickly as they possibly can. And so what Orpheus does is he simply pulls out his own musical instrument, and he begins to play a song that's much more lovely than what the sirens are singing. And his sailors just completely ignore the sirens, and they turn and they go about their way. That's the image of vivification. The image of vivification is not merely that you just strain and strive against sin uh, just as if you were just bound and wrapped up. No, it's that you have this sweeter tune that is Jesus Christ beckoning you, His beauty, His glory, beckoning you towards freedom and life and love and those kinds of things. Zach, you want to come up? We'll do a little bit of Q&A.